that was a lesson. Bringing couples together changed the atmosphere, changed the attitude, and propelled people towards getting once again excited about a product that already had become a business. Welcome back to the Fifth Wave Podcast. I'm Jeffrey Young, Editor-in-Chief of Coffee Business Magazine, Fifth Wave. To kick off 2023, we're bringing you an interview with a true industry legend, the one and only George Howell, a name synonymous with coffee excellence. Since the 1980s, George has played an integral role in the development of specialty coffee in the United States and indeed the rest of the world, pioneering the third wave coffee movement and championing single origin coffees and direct trade. George co-founded the Cup of Excellence program, a global initiative designed to help farmers receive more money for their high-quality coffees. In this thoroughly enjoyable conversation, George shares the details of his early coffee career and experiences, including the unlikely sale of his small Boston-based coffee chain to Starbucks. And he also discusses balancing business with his true passion for coffee discovery and his desire to share and highlight the highest quality coffees from around the world. Hello, George. So to start off, tell us what was your first coffee memory? The first coffee moment was actually driving in Berkeley in 1967 or 68 and seeing people standing out on corners, uh, drinking out of porcelain cups. Uh, they were either white with long black stems or the reverse, uh, drinking coffee at 10 in the morning. And I said, well, I got to stop and see what that's all about. And that was Pete's coffee. Bitter, but that never left, that, that visual experience, that attraction. Yeah, what was the year that you actually got into coffee and, and actually became part of the coffee industry? We decided, Lori and I, my wife, uh, decided to get into it in the summer of 74. And then we opened up our first cafe in Harvard Square, Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, in April of 1975. So that's really the beginning, wow. the opening bell, right? Yeah. Um, and we were within three months an overnight success. Um, it's kind of interesting because, you know, people were telling us we wouldn't make it. And I don't know. There were no marketing studies that suggested that that would be super successful. Um, we had just seen the success on the West Coast. Uh, but um, it was by driving home what I was passionately interested in to a cafe unlike any other that I had seen that really made the success um, and I don't think there was a marketing study that would have told me to do that, right? Um, it's what's driven me from start to finish has been uh, really wanting to do, if, if I do a cafe or whatever I'm doing, it's got to be top of the line in terms of the quality that I'm giving people, right? I, because I'm basically driven by the need to share. And you can't share something you yourself don't fully believe in. Wow. So back in 1975, April, was it April? April. April, yeah, 70, April 9th. April 9th. Okay. <laughs> right. So back on April 9th, 1975, yeah. what was that concept that you opened? 
It was a, um, it was only 600 square feet uh, in size in the beginning. Um, and uh, it had a coffee bar where we served coffee. Uh, we had a little tiny espresso machine, but mainly it was uh, coffee brewed in an urn that we could serve immediately. Uh, but we also had five seats along the counter for people to sit at. And um, because I had been told that there was no difference between the different origins of coffee and all I had to do was blend them a different way and call them that way by previous people in the business uh, in my area... I had the need to prove that they were different from each other. So we brought in our French presses and we were offering a French, French press service for any coffee that we were selling retail yeah. on the spot day one. Mm. Um, which, if you think about it, I don't think anything was happening for another two decades or more mm. for that kind of thing to happen anywhere in this country. Wow. And on top of that, uh, the other thing was uh, how completely stale all the coffee was in the Boston area at the time. So we put roast dates down on every single barrel. Those days, coffee was loose. You didn't, there was no, no one-way valve yet or those bags. So we had a roast date on every single barrel and, uh, and every bag that we sold retail had the roast date on it. And we were roasting twice a week. So nothing was older than five or six days. Uh, so... Those were two innovations that, again, would remain really ours for the next several decades. Uh, not until the third wave really came did things change and take that up. And at that time, was there anyone in particular, a mentor or anyone that is sort of you took that lead from? Oh, yeah. There were key people all along the way. No doubt about it. I mean, the ones that stand out uh, are uh, Erna Knudsen, very famous in the uh, in the coffee industry. Uh, you know, she was a pioneer who took over a, a male-run company, uh, BC Ireland. She was their secretary, and in a matter of uh, what a few years, uh, she became the owner. It then changed her, her name essentially. Uh, and uh, she, all roads led to Rome, and Rome was Erna Knudsen. Right. Literally. The quality that she was offering uh, from Sumatra, from Kenya, from Ethiopia, and so on, just there was no one else to even come close to it. Um, so that meant we were shipping all our coffee from San Francisco uh, across all that land, 3,000 miles, to Boston, and that's what we were roasting. Yeah. With our little ProBot 15-kilo roaster. But, you know, again, what was driving me was the need to really be certain that I had the best I could get a hold of. And that first door was called Coffee Connection, right? Yep. Those were the days. That was right around the time when The French Connection, that movie, came out, right? Uh -huh. So my wife said, let's name it Coffee Connection. And yeah. we all went, yeah. <laughs> and that was that. <laughs> and was the plan just one coffee shop? doing the best quality coffee you could, or was there a plan to open more? No, no. Again, I was never business-minded. I was, um, I, although I already had two children and a third on the way, so I really had to have my feet on the ground as well, right? But we did one at a time. Our growth was opportunistic, period. Um, a year later, we were told in that building that we had to triple our space, 
to almost 1,800 square feet, which we had to do. Luckily, we got an SBA loan, Small Business Administration, uh, and uh, we succeeded to do that. Uh, and we were very popular day one. I mean, people streamed in. Uh, this was an unacknowledged desire on the part of many, many people to have something tasting decent that had not been expressed by anyone, right? It just was a flood. So we did very well uh, right from the start uh, with that. And then opportunity knocked, and one would be uh, Faneuil Hall Marketplace in downtown Boston, which became, uh, which, you know, came to us and we were able to put a small cafe in there. It was really uh, takeout only. Uh, it was a food market, uh, you know, takeout and, uh, and food that you could take home as well. Um, and uh, over, it took about two years, but in about the third year, it became a real cash cow. Um, and then, you know, I would have a dentist over in one of these really rich suburbs that I went to, and I saw a small space a few years later in 79 and took that mm. because it just seemed to me logical that we would do well. Yeah. It took another two years to get that going, but yep. uh, once we put out two tables and four chairs outside of it, it took off, right? Um, and that's the way we grew to about 11 or 12 stores uh, cafes all in the greater Boston area until right around 1992. Uh, that's when Starbucks was really, you know, charging into Boston or beginning to very clearly. And we got venture capital. And in 93, we doubled the number of cafes. We spread out to New Jersey, um, you know, uh, and, and, you know, a year later, Quite unexpectedly, we sold Starbucks. They approached us. Uh, and uh, because we had such great locations and because we really owned Boston, completely yeah. owned it, uh, there simply was no competition of any kind. Uh, so uh, we were able to, uh, we, we sold it. Basically, my kids were coming into the age of college. I had six of them. Oh. <laughs> and I was now looking forward to a battle. And on top of that, uh, because we had venture capital and everything, it was becoming more of a business business that was taking me away from the discoveries I was making in coffee at that time that were really amazing. Um, and I really was having to pull myself away from that, that pioneering discovery work that I was doing uh, towards, you know, get, getting... Uh, getting more investment money, organization, and all the rest of it, which is not where my heart beats. Yeah. So was that a good, you know, would you consider that the, the seminal deal for you? Yeah, it was very good. It, um, it gave me some time to reconnect with my family because the work that I was doing was huge. Yeah. Um, on the one hand, um, it allowed me much more freedom, uh, in the house that I had, I set up a cupping lab there and a, you know, sample roaster and everything. So I never disconnected from specialty. Uh, and, um, I was invited, uh, later on to, to, uh, be the quality consultant in what was called the gourmet project that started in 1997, uh, that was, basically run by the United Nations ITC 
uh, in conjunction with the National Coffee um, ICO. So um, I did that, and that led to Cup of Excellence over two years. And that was really an exciting adventure as well. Um, but it allowed me to resume my interest in single origin, which quickly became single farm coffees, right? I had just started to discover that in Kenya and in Costa Rica and around 1988, 89. Um, and uh, what I learned uh, from those two places and the kind of quality leadership that was exhibited back then, uh, um, you know, I was able to apply further into, uh, into Cup of Excellence. First with the international competitions that we did that were based in the country of origin and uh, then with the uh, auction, which was very much based, on my point of view, from uh, on uh, the Kenya auction, mm. which was so extraordinary. Um, back in the 80s, it was the law that every coffee sold in, from out of Kenya had to go through the auction. Mm. And uh, I was getting samples, and uh, it basically allowed me to pick from the very best, uh, very best lots that were available that were being sent to me by Dormans, by far the top of the line exporter of coffee, quality-wise, from Kenya. And, um, you know, they'd ask me, well, you, you got all these samples. Uh, and I would say, well, I really want this lot and I want that lot. And the question was, how much, how much are you willing to pay for that? And the answer was, back in those days, uh, sky is the limit. So uh, we literally had the finest Kenya coffees many years in a row, period. So what if you could describe the Cup of Excellence program? You know, it's a big name. You're the man really associated with it. How would you describe what it actually was? The, the concept with the Gourmet Project mm. uh, was to uh, really, and this had to do with five different countries. Uh, Brazil was the only one I was involved with. Um, but it was to improve quality uh, aimed at the rising specialty coffee market in the States, in Europe, and Japan uh, in order to get higher premiums for coffee farmers who really were constantly buffeted by a commodity market often below the cost of production. Um, where, you know, there was no incentive for farmers uh, to re uh, that really was making them money, right? So um, that was, again, a two-year project. Um, and I set about it. The first year, uh, the, the person who hired me in Brazil, Marcelo Vieira, uh, really uh, went around with me uh, weeks at a time to a number of Brazilian farmers, uh, can many fairs that they had uh, in agriculture. Uh, and of course, you know, Brazil is a massive producer of coffee. 35, 40% of the world's coffee comes out of that country. Um, and uh, speak to them about the, you know, this rise in quality concerns in the United States and so on. What Brazilian farmers needed to do to achieve that kind of quality and on and on. And uh, at the end of the first year, we assembled three samples, like 20, 30 kilo samples 
of uh, the three best coffees we could get our hands on. Uh, one of them was the Ernesto, the Ely Cafe prize winner, number one prize winner. Uh, they had a yearly competition there in Brazil. Uh, so we had that, and we had two others that we had found uh, along the way, which were really exceptional. And I sent samples around the whole, all the United States to top importers at the time and, uh, and to roasters. And either I got yawns and inability to get to it because of business, or I got, yeah, your Brazil's better, but not 25 cents better. Thank you very much. Um, I complained to um, another person who, who had... Um, uh, you know, tremendous uh, influence on me uh, and uh, or help rather for me. And he uh, he basically set up two tastings with roasters on the West Coast um, to um, to actually uh, cup my three Brazils again. And I insisted that it be against their Brazils. Um, so that happened. And uh, so we had these roasters, 11 of them, come in, and this happened twice. Uh, and uh, we did blind cuppings, and the three coffees I had came in first, second, and third. Oh. And that was interesting because the reaction of the people there, which was always kind of serious and, you know, this is business and whatever, turned into people being really enthusiastic, and the barriers came off. and. There was this just excited talk about how great the coffee was, <laughs> right? And uh, that was a lesson in terms of bringing people, cuppers together uh, and really having them taste excitingly different coffees blind and discover what they were and so on, changed the atmosphere, changed the attitude and propelled people towards you know, getting once again excited about a product that often had become, already had become a business, right? Took it outside of that. Uh, so, you know, when two years was up and we knew that uh, we were coming near the end of this thing, uh, and, you know, I really didn't want to write one of those long um, bureaucratic reports that go nowhere about recommendations and so on that end up dead on the table. Um, I recommended that we do a, um, a competition where cuppers from around the world, roasters, would come to Brazil, spend a week there. And uh, later it dawned on me, okay, now I'm going to have people from Japan and the States and Europe fighting over which, you know, who gets what coffee. And so it was logical to come up with a, uh, an internet auction. And so that's the beginning mm. of Cup of Excellence right there. <laughs> Yeah, wow. that was all in 1999. The first, um, the first competition, international competition, and internet auction uh, in the world was Cup of Excellence. Um, the competition was in in November, I believe, of 99, and the auction followed them shortly thereafter. Right, and it achieved it achieved its its results. They were huge. They were huge. Um, Lots at that time, but it was 35% over the market price, which was unheard of uh, for the winners. There were 10 winners. Um, and we never looked back. Uh, a year later, Guatemala was calling me wanting to, uh, to join Cup of Excellence, which hadn't been named that yet, but wanted that, followed by Nicaragua and the rest is history. 
Yeah, incredible. So you must visit a lot of coffee farms along the way. Uh, yeah, I certainly have, uh, no doubt. And that continues to this day with with the present company that I have, yeah. um, you know. Uh, when I left uh, Cup of Excellence at the end of 2002, uh, you know, I decided to open up my own uh, cafe and roastery um, in order to get in front. What was it like to, um, what were the, how would you say, uh, what were the challenges to to being a roaster and selling such coffees as came from Cup of Excellence with that kind of focus on single farms. Uh, so to this day, we only carry uh, one blend, and I just don't want to do more blends than that. Uh, blends are 99% of the time slightly lower quality coffees combined together where the sum is greater than the parts. Um, if you're really selling top-of-the-line single farm, the part is better than the whole, but to reverse the equation. Yeah. Uh, right. But you've really got to be looking for it. Uh, and you're looking for farms that you can have relations with, um, you know, which is important, critical, really. Um, but it, it requires getting, really finding that a farm can give you the kind of quality you're looking for at least two or three times uh, two or three years in a row. Mm -hmm. You can be lucky, but you can't be lucky over time yeah. and repeat it over and over again. And so, you know, with certain farms like Mamudo in Kenya um, and from Guatemala and so on, um, we have slowly, very slowly started to build relationships and maintaining that coffee uh, year round for people, for customers to buy. Uh, and of course, that brings me to the other innovation that we did with the with with George Howell Coffee, which is we we began right from day one freezing all our green coffee, uh, which really, if you get the coffee soon enough and it's fresh, uh, retains its uh, its freshness without any aging over a period of two to three years minimum. Mm -hmm thus allowing us to just skip right over this idea of coffee being seasonal yeah. to it's being available like a bottle of wine year round. So that is to the benefit of the farmer, right? And that you maintain even to today. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's really critical. And in fact, um, well over a decade ago, we also were, once we, uh, in our main cafe in downtown Boston, um, we also began freezing the roasted coffee that we had ready to brew a single cup at a time. Um, so once you opened a bag, we put those in little containers, uh, just exactly the amount we needed to grind and brew a single cup. Uh, and um, those were frozen as well. This was during the time when I can't tell you how many videos there were saying, never freeze your coffee at home which is absolute bull. Um, on the contrary, you should grind and brew it on the spot. And it, um, you know, it improves the quality. Great. Well, you're certainly, you know, one of the megastars of the, the world of specialty coffee. You've had a, an incredible career, achieved so much. What would you say are the secrets to, you know, building a successful business? 
Well, um, again, I, I cannot offer, in my opinion, you know, business recommendations because I wasn't driven by that. I certainly uh, succeeded because I found people to work with me in my company who were really great at what they did, right? That happened with Coffee Connection, and it's happening now. It can take me time <laughs> to find it with a lot of falls in the, in the process. But, um, you know, my passion had to find people who really liked what I was doing and who were committed to, to both helping me and to applying their expertise to those things, right? Um, the only thing I can say is keeping one's feet on the ground, being aware of the realities that you face so you don't do insane things, right? Um, but again, it's finding those people that you really work with well. And that can be difficult at first, right? In both times, the Coffee Connection and The Current, it took me time to find that right. And in the meanwhile, it was a lot of stumbling around. Yeah, no doubt. Any regrets, though? Anything you would have done differently if you were to start your career all over again? I don't know. Um, it's not over yet. So, um, no, I, I, don't, I don't think so. Um, you, know, may, you know, mistakes? Yeah. Sure. Like, you know, when I started George Howell Coffee, I opened up first as Terroir Coffee, we opened up in a suburb with, uh, it was a restaurant cafe concept. Uh, I had partners that didn't ultimately work out with me and I had to, you know, cut the whole thing out, right? At major loss. Uh, so, you know, that's the kind of thing that really slowed us down, but didn't stop us, right? But if I had something business-wise to regret, you know, it would be that. Should have been much more careful in terms of where I went. Location, as they say, location, location, location. Yep. And it's really true. It's absolutely critical, especially when you're starting to pick perfect spots. Uh, with Coffee Connection, we aced it. We, the first cafe was in Harvard Square, surrounded by Harvard University yeah. on all four sides, you know, up and coming. And that was a perfect move. Yeah. Right. And I had forgotten that lesson when I opened up my first cafe mm. as George Howell Coffee. And any piece of advice that you'd give to, you know, a, an aspiring roaster starting their business, what, what would you say to them you have to get right? Yeah. I mean, that's hard to say again. I mean, you know, you see new businesses coming in right now that are talking about, you know, being just regular, good old coffee and that's how they're going to make it. And they're, you know, got venture capital and all the rest of it, I have no advice to them. Mm. You know, it coffee leaves me like that blank. Mm. You know, again, the only people I would address myself to are people who really love the drink and who are really excited to share their discoveries, uh, you know, and enthusiasm with, with other people. That's really why I love having cafes, because there I'm dealing face-to-face -face with my customer. Uh, wholesale... I'm dealing with somebody else who's dealing with customers, which almost invariably becomes a nickel and dime game. So, What are the challenges that our industry is facing right now? Well, everything. I mean, we've got, you know, inflation, prices going through the roof. Um, you know, how customers re relate to that, react, um, 
how how long this lasts. And of course, for coffee, it's a it's a two two attacks because Brazil had a major drop in production last year, which took prices way higher than they were. And now you've got inflation due to completely different causes. So you have two things happening. Not only do you have coffee going up, but then all the other products that go with it, milk and uh, sugar and all the rest of it, which are rising even faster in some cases than coffee. Um, so that's, you know, that's a big, that's a big issue uh, for starters. Um, another one, uh, you know, what worries me with Cup of Excellence um, and a lot of things is that uh, we're, we're, we're going in 50 directions at once. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of marketing going on that I think sends us off in the wrong direction that does not have a positive benefit for farmers. Uh, cold brew is frankly very generic. Um, it's more of a beer-like substance. Uh, it does not really reflect the terroir or the nuances of a coffee. Um, and yet, and people are selling it as low acidity. Oh my God. Um, try a wine without acidity. Uh, how about a strawberry without acidity? Uh, really like that? The mushy, you know, blah flavor that comes through? Uh, you got to be kidding me. Uh, coffee should have liveliness to it. It shouldn't be so sharp that it makes your, you know, you cringe. It should be smooth. Um, you know, oh, if you roast too lightly, uh, it's like a lemonade without enough sugar. But you put the right amount of sugar in and we all love a good fruit juice. <laughs> you know, it's uh, an iced coffee can be done these days um, really in a way where you get real balance uh, that has way more flavor and liveliness than does the often boring flat cold brew. But again, it's being sold as something that's healthier. Uh, it's being sold, it's being again and again, the message is, hey, uh, you know, no acidity. That's wonderful news. Well, no, it's not. Uh, so there's a lot of confusion. And again, the older I've gotten and the more I've been involved, the more it's about the farmer, period, end of sentence. And if we don't support farmers and give them a means to grow in the industry and participate in the profits of that, the golden goose is going to leave. Yeah. yeah. Period. So... What's next now for George Howell? Just continuing on this path, um, developing, um, you know, a few cafes, not a lot of them. I'm not into saturating areas or something like that, which to me inevitably leads to um, a reduction in quality. Uh, if you grow in a way too fast, that's what happens, um, I think. Um, this one's based really on very high quality, uh, you know, with model cafes located in critical areas that rely on uh, several types of customer so that you're never dependent on only one. Um, you know, students, artists, uh, theater, high-tech business, um, universities, all of these things 
it has to be combined uh, for us, right? This is not the model for other chains or, or roasters that are developing, only for some. Some of us that I, that, you know, I relate to most, uh, quality-driven. Well, we started the, the conversation with what was your first coffee moment? So what would you say was your favorite or couple of favorite coffee moments in the whole uh, of your career so far? Yeah, one was discovering uh, a farm in Costa Rica, La Minita, uh, and really going there and being introduced to cupping really for the first time in terms of an actual professionally done uh, and being confronted with uh, five different Costa Ricans, one of which was this farm, which was hand sorting the uh, the beans so that it was only like 23% of the farm's production, which is really a minute amount. Um, so really refining that coffee and being told to uh, pick blindly one of the, the one that was and, you know, not being experienced uh, really and being told just look for a clean and sweet. And I thank God picked the right one. <laughs> I don't know if, if I would have kept going if I hadn't, right? But that was sort of great. Um, and the other one was right after that going to Kenya yep. and blowing my mind on the on on the the you know having 50 different lots of coffee in front of me that I had to cup through all in one line right wow. <laughs> of the period of about an hour um, and the variations and the absolute focus uh, that um, the owner of Dorman's uh, Jeremy Block had on on you know cupping those and learning that system right that was revelation. I, there was a system he had set up for, for cupping, which I actually have come back to using today uh, for our own, for the company purposes. Wow. So those were really exciting moments because it gave me tools by which I could really uh, start to pick my way through the myriad variations in coffee, both in quality, in flavor, all of that. Well, that's been a mind-blowing conversation. George Howell, thanks so much for joining us here today on Fifth Wave. Well, my, my pleasure, Jeff. Uh, anytime. <laughs> and that's all for this week's Fifth Wave podcast. Please subscribe to the Fifth Wave wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this show, please recommend us to a friend or colleague. If you want to stay informed, visit worldcoffeeportal.com to get access to all the latest global coffee news, including the Weekly Coffee Dose, our newsletter, collecting all the big coffee news stories of the week. Link is in the show notes. This episode was produced in the one and only Serendipity Studios in glorious Camden, North London. It was produced by myself, Jeffrey Young, Hannah Heath, and sound engineering by Chris Brister. And this week's track is from New York-based artist Dudley Music, a finalist in the Coffee Music Project 2019 with a powerful track, Unreliable. Happy New Year, everyone. And until next time, stay safe, stay passionate, and stay caffeinated. I even tried to put my trust in you. You broke your promise, pops, but I ain't crying, no. It's kind of sad that my dad's unreliable. Why so unreliable? Thing that she cared about 
Feel like a dummy for giving honey a shared account Got all this money from me and it was a fair amount It's funny how the bunny says she loved me when the carrots out <laughs> And when there's something that she's scared about Instead of telling me what is it, she'll visit her parents' house Then she'll take all of our business and just air it out But if it's me and you, then why they need to know our whereabouts? I hate it, I can't take it Cause every promise you make, you break it The queen of hearts always has two faces I guess it's best we go our separate ways, let's face it Just stop fronting, this ain't loving Cause if we ain't got trust, then we ain't got nothing I'm single again, but I ain't crying though It's kinda crazy how these ladies are reliable